Hey, everybody. Welcome into the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy. We have writer and author James Kerchick in the back room today. We will get to Jamie in a second. But first, thank you for tuning in. We appreciate you listening, and we'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com and or post on our social media, and we'll read some feedback next time. And if you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe and rate and review, and you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. All right, let's get to our two big things. The first being the coordinated strikes by the United States, the Brits, Australia, Netherlands, Canada, and Bahrain against Iranian-backed Houthi militia. Houthis operating out of Yemen. What happened is that the Brits had intercepted some missiles and drones headed for commercial ships. This occurred after two dozen drone and missile attacks on ships in the Red Sea since November. And since November, more than 2,000 ships have been forced to divert thousands of miles. Instead of going through the Red Sea, they've had to go through the southern tip, around the southern tip of Africa. The number of containers traveling daily through the Red Sea fell by more than 60% from 500,000 in November to 200,000 in December. Global trade has fallen 1.3% in December. Uh, The U.S. and its allies issued warnings, and the Houthis ignored those warnings, and so... Last night, the U.S. and its allies decided to attack. So this further expands what is already a complicated situation and conflict in the Middle East, threatens to not only bring the United States deeper into it and its allies, but also Iran, which people have been concerned about since the Hamas attack on Israel since October 7th. So the situation just overall seems to be getting worse, not better. And now... The concern is how, not if, how and when the Houthis will retaliate and will it be contained to what most experts believe is parts of Israel or could they strike with terrorist attacks in the United States? Yeah, this is not likely to be the the last strike by American-led forces uh, because the Houthis have been there for a decade and they're well ensconced and we know they're going to quote unquote retaliate. And this is going to be a tit for tat and see if it spins out of control, which, of course, is the big fear. So a very complicated situation. Let's move on to number two, Donald Trump. Authorize the prosecution of a president for his official acts would open a Pandora's box from which this nation may never recover. I understand your position to be that a president is immune from criminal prosecution for any official act that he takes as president, even if that action is taken for an unlawful or unconstitutional purpose. If a president has to look over his shoulder or her shoulder every time he or she has to make a a, a controversial decision and worry after I leave office, if I go into jail for this, when my political opponents take power, that inevitably dampens the ability of the president. I think it's paradoxical to say that his constitutional duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed allows him to violate criminal laws. I mean, come on. Can a president assassinate his opponents without being dragged into court or being arrested? Well, I mean, you know, it depends, I guess, on how many senators the president has in his party. I, I thought you were going to say it depends on who the opponents are. <laughs> oh, well. I, was I mean, this here, I don't know if you guys listened to this hearing this week, but it was absolutely cray-cray. The attorney for Donald Trump, John Sauer literally argued in court that 
presidents, former presidents, should have immunity, even in cases where they enlist SEAL Team 6 to assassinate opponents, even if they sell pardons, even if they sell military secrets. And the basis of their argument, you know, what's contradicting, they're claiming that Trump should have absolute immunity, at the same time admit that a president or former president can only be criminally charged if he was impeached in the House and convicted in the Senate. So then that means it's not absolute. Right? For, for one narrow piece. Well, but absolute there, there is was, absolute. Right. I mean, so that was the contradiction. Yeah. So in their argument, they literally refuted their entire defense. Well, it was also contradictory to the impeachment hearing where they argued that he could easily be prosecuted by the Justice Department after the impeachment. It didn't matter about the impeachment that what right. he did wrong was a justify. Well, what could be ju pro prosecuted by the Justice Department. And of course, John Sauer was confronted with this contradiction, and he basically said, well, I didn't say that. Well, yeah, he said something <laughs> like, I, I can't tell you what was in the heads of the senators uh, back then. But it's the, you know, they burn the candle at both ends. It's what they do. I mean, this is just a delay tactic, because I think that they know that this is going to the Supreme Court. And if the Supreme Court takes this case or doesn't, whatever the case is, it could delay the actual criminal trial. That, yeah. that is their goal. I think the court understands the stakes here. And my thinking is that the trial may not start on March 4th, but it will start shortly thereafter. I think this is a cut and dry case. The argument that a president should be able to assassinate opponents. I mean, we're in some crazy place right now. Agree completely. They'll never rule in his favor. That I, yeah. I agree with you completely. I'm just wondering what they'll do that could create delay tactics. I'm astounded by how quickly this is moving, how the, the turnaround is so fast. And I think the Supreme Court, if and when it gets involved, is going to respect that time frame because of the importance to not only the election, but to democracy. All right, let's get to our winners and losers. My loser, Trump, for not signing a loyalty oath requested of candidates for election in Illinois that asked, amongst other things, to swear that they won't support overthrowing the government. He did sign one in 2016 and 2020. Winner, okay, friends, let's go escape this scary political landscape with two fantastic movies, Ferrari and Poor Things. They are fabulous. My loser this week are the Republican governors in 15 states that rejected summer food money for kids. Uh, especially, I want to call out Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds, who actually said that when considering insecure youths, when childhood obesity has become such an epidemic, we really can't extend our summer food money. My winner is the appeals court judge Florence Pan for destroying Trump's immunity claims when she posed the hypothetical questions to flesh out the bounds of Trump's immunity argument. My winner, New York Attorney General Tish James, who continues to be rock solid in her obsession to uphold the law, no matter what bullshit Donald Trump flings her way. My loser, the entire Republican Party. Need I say more? Which brings us to this week's rant. After Wednesday night's meaningless GOP debate between Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley and simultaneous Fox News town hall with Donald Trump, Haley's biggest supporter and surrogate, New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu, went on CNN with Caitlin Collins 
and reiterated that he would still vote for Trump if he was the nominee, even if he's a convicted felon. And once again, Sununu, who's repeating the same promise made by countless other leading Republicans, demonstrated just how broken the Republican Party is, how leaderless it is, how coreless, soulless, and ethically, morally, and legally bankrupt it is. Sununu claims that President Joe Biden is so bad, so dangerous, that even Trump would be better. Well, he's dead wrong. Joe Biden is a fine man, a decent man, a family man, a man of faith, character. He's compassionate, empathetic, smart, intellectually curious, highly experienced and capable, and perhaps the most successful, productive first-term president in modern American history, if not all of history. By contrast, Trump is a sick, twisted, sadistic, cruel, deranged, pathologically lying, sexist, racist, corrupt, sociopathic, sexual abusing, dictator wannabe, insurrectionist traitor, who's twice impeached, four times indicted on 91 felony counts, and doesn't give a flying fuck about anything or anyone but himself. Which is why people like Sununu cannot be taken seriously. Because they know, they know they're full of shit. They're just weak, feckless cowards. Pathetic sycophants driven by fear and a craving for proximity to power. In spite of this, I remain an optimist. I believe Trump will lose, and lose big in November. I'm not even sure he'll be on the ballot or be the nominee. But if he is, Biden kicked his ass once before, and will do it again. And that was before impeachment, insurrection, and multiple criminal prosecutions. Trump's base has shrunk. Fewer Republicans support him now than in 2020. And a candidate needs more voters, not less, to turn a past defeat into victory. Donald Trump is clearly more deranged and dangerous than ever. I trust my fellow Americans will once again do the right thing and keep him as far from the Oval Office as possible. And I also trust that the nation's courts, including the highest court in the land, as well as Republican election officials and secretaries of state, will continue to protect and defend our democracy. So let me tell you a little bit about Jamie Kerchick. He's a journalist, historian, columnist for Tablet Magazine, writer at large for Airmail, and the author of the New York Times bestseller, Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the Los Angeles Times, the Atlantic, the New York Review of Books, New York Magazine, and Rolling Stone, among others. He's a frequent speaker at colleges and universities across America, and at venues including the National Security Agency, the U.S. Department of State, the Oslo Freedom Forum, and the Geneva Summit for Human Rights and Democracy. He's also appeared on Good Morning America, Real Time with Bill Maher, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, the BBC, and NPR. Jamie, welcome into the back room. Thank you for having me, Andy. So before we get into uh, more meaty stuff, I want to just peel the onion back a little bit, go back in time, talk about your background, your childhood, how you grew up. You're a, you're a mass hole? I am a mass hole, yes. <laughs> We've been I, are you? No, but my daughter is a mass oh. hole. She lives there now. Oh, okay. she, my daughter right. went to uh, UMass Amherst and met her, yeah. met her husband there, and now she's raising my three grandchildren there. So she's been in Massachusetts. Fortunately, I, I avoided... Uh, obtaining a uh, really thick Boston accent. Maybe to your listeners, they'll be able to detect a faint whisper of it, but I think I've largely uh, avoided that, thankfully. Do you ever let loose with words like wicked? 
Is that part of your that vernacular? That sometimes comes out. That that is part of my vernacular a little bit. I mean, I growing up certainly, but not so much anymore. Uh, my grandkids have a little bit of an accent. They'll be like, they say "not." That's yeah. not fair. It's not. I'm like, yeah. well, what is not? Like, yeah, right. your mother's your mother's a New Yorker. Enough with that, yeah, yeah. that nonsense. Yeah. So you grew up in Boston. What was your childhood like? Were you always into the stuff you do now for a living? Was that part of who you were as a kid? Or did that come later on in life? Politics, history? Um, well, I just celebrated my 40th birthday and my uh, mother brought down, we, we celebrated it at, at, a, at a restaurant here in Washington and my mom brought down some photographs of me. I must have been in fourth grade, fifth grade, and I was already working at the local cable station in my very small town outside of Boston. I was I was doing sort of newscasts um, on the on the local public access cable channel. Um, I I didn't go into television news, thankfully, but I think I wanted to be a journalist um, or a writer of some sort. Definitely from middle school, um, I started a newspaper in my middle school, um, which was really just a vehicle for me to publish my film criticism. Uh, I think there was a, I, I went through many different phases where. I wanted to be a film critic at one point. Um, I wanted to be a war photographer, a conflict photographer at another point. Um, and I've actually gone on and done some of that stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm, a, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm a bit of a dilettante. I'm not a, you know, I'm not a film critic by any means. Although I've, I've, I've written some film criticism, and I've, and I've worked overseas as a, as a foreign correspondent, and um, took some photographs and some pretty hairy situations, but by no means would I, you know, call myself a, mm -hmm. a conflict photographer. That's a real calling. Um, uh, and then definitely in high school, I was writing a lot for the school newspaper and yeah, into, in, into college. That was probably my main or one of, one of my extracurricular activities. Um, so yeah, from an early age, it was definitely, I definitely wanted to do something in, in media. In, in, in journalism. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting. I've, I ask this question a lot of people, and, and what ends up being fascinating is that most people in single-digit ages often have done stuff that directly relates to what they do today. And so I think those, those seeds are planted yeah. at, at a very early age. And when did you come out? I came out to some high school friends very late in my senior year of high school. Um, I didn't come out to my parents or really to the world at large until, uh, well, just a few months later, actually, freshman year of college when I was at Yale. Mm -hmm. um, what kind of experience so yeah, pretty, was that I mean, for you? That, that, I mean, that, you know, that sounds old today mm -hmm. because the kids are coming out so much younger. Mm -hmm. um, what was the experience for me? Uh, so I went to an all-boys high school, which was, as you can imagine, not the most conducive environment for being openly gay, at least when I was there. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, all all, ma all all male environments tend yeah. tend not to be. Um, it was look, it was great. I mean, in re in retrospect, I had a very accepting family. I grew up in a pretty liberal Jewish household in the Northeast, mm -hmm. which is not to say that there aren't there aren't liberal Jewish households in the Northeast where the parents are home are not homophobic. That certainly happens. Sure. Um, but I had it relatively easy. 
Um, just when I compare my story to other people that I know who had much more difficult mm -hmm. situations, whose parents were not accepting, um, who maybe uh, maybe they went to a, a religious college or school, right, and got expelled. Um, that's certainly happened to people that I know. Um, but look, it, it, it was difficult in the sense that, you know, when you're in the closet, um, you miss out on a lot of the experiences that your peers are having in terms of having genuine romantic relationships with, with other people. I was not having those. Mm -hmm. I didn't inflict, I didn't, I didn't inflict any young women, um, in, you know, in terms of like pretending to be a boyfriend, right? I never had a girlfriend mm -hmm. in, in high school or, or ever. Um, so I, I avoided that trap that a lot of gay men fall into. Um, but yeah, I mean, it definitely, I had to kind of catch up, you know, like I didn't, like my first relationships were not until college, whereas most people, they have them in, you know, maybe middle school, they had their first uh, boyfriend or girlfriend, right? Like I didn't, I didn't really do that until, until later. And that's, you know, that's definitely true of gay men of my generation and certainly older. Um, I can't really speak to what the experience is now, because again, like I said, it's been such a dramatic change for the better, I think, mm -hmm. in terms of the accept the acceptance of LGBT people in this country that, um, you see younger people coming out at much, much earlier ages. Um, and you also see the figures that they're reporting, like the percentage of Gen Z who identifies as LGBT is something like 50%. I don't believe that for a second, by the way. But hey, you know what? If they won't want to say it, it's at least it's not considered the stigma that it was when I was growing up, right? Where you didn't you didn't want to be gay. I mean, it was it was it was considered something bad. And you know, we couldn't get married. Um, and that didn't even seem like a possibility when I was growing up. Today, there's such a dichotomy between like, on the one hand, progress has been so amazing where young people do feel comfortable being able to come out at an early age and express who they are and, and just embracing who they want to be. But at the, yeah. at the same time, we're living in incredibly homophobic, transphobic times. Well, you say those two things, you say those two words and they're both different. There's homophobia and there's transphobia. Right. And they're different and they're different concepts. So I actually don't think we're going, we're really living through a homophobic time anymore. Um, I think it's, I mean, are there homophobic people? Absolutely. But most of the kind of backlash that you see, or most of the mm -hmm. controversies that are generated today, if you look at all these state laws that people talk about, um, it's almost entirely to do with the transgender issue, which is a separate issue. I'm not saying it's not valid and worthy. It's, it's, it's just a separate issue. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know the trans, the trans issue is bearing the brunt of this right now, um, and it's just a different debate. I mean, but but is, let me ask you this. I'm going to push back just a little bit. And I'm not gay, so I, I obviously I'm going to defer to you in mm -hmm. terms of sure. what you think are the defaults that exist today. But uh, I am Jewish, by the way. I'm going to put, throw that out mm -hmm. there. And so it, when you think about LGBTQ, you know the T is part of LGBTQ. Similarly, there may not be the same type of anti-Semitism today that existed years ago, although one can mm -hmm. certainly argue that it's fucking out of control these days, but yeah. it's a, it's a, it's a different, it's like gay trans well, is like Jew Zionist. The way I look I at it. I don't know. It, I like, mean, yeah, I don't look, uh, bigotry is bad mm -hmm. against anybody. It's bad. Right. Mm -hmm. But it depends on what we're defining as bigotry. Is it bigoted to is it bigoted to oppose the provision of puberty blockers to ten and, and eleven year olds? I don't think that's a bigoted position. I think that's something that 
people of goodwill should be able to disagree on. And I'll just say as a gay man, I'm very concerned that I think a lot of these young people who are claiming to be trans or non-binary, um, because they are gender non-conforming, and in some cases they're going on you know, hormone blockers and even more uh, seriously having irreversible medical procedures done to them. I think a lot of those kids are actually gay, mm -hmm. right? These are gender non-conforming kids. And, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that, you know, if you have a gender non-conforming kid, there's a good chance they're going to grow up to be gay, right? Like the boy who plays with his daughter, with his sister's dresses. And we know this, by the way, this has been scientifically proven that most kids who report gender dysphoric feelings um, actually grow out of them as they get older, and that most of those who grow out of them end up being gay. So I'm very concerned that a lot of this kind of transgender craze and this spike, this absolutely um, massive spike in young people reporting transgender identity, I am concerned that we are sort of swept up in a, in a fad. But unlike other fads, like say over certain types of music or you know, TikTok or whatever. This is the fad that it actually is going to have consequences, in some cases irreversible ones. Mm -hmm. And I think disproportionate, disproportionately for young gay people who are, they're getting a very confusing message because it used to be that, I mean, where we should be as a society is that it doesn't matter how you express yourself. And it, it doesn't matter how you express your gender. Mm -hmm. If you're a man who wants to wear, you know, feminine clothing, whatever that means, fine, go ahead, knock yourself out. Same for, uh, you know, a butch lesbian who likes to wear combat boots and overalls, right? Mm -hmm. That's fine. That's what we that's what we should be accepting of. A lot of this transgender ideology is positing that gender variance is actually a sign of people being the opposite sex, right? So these are two separate categories. You cannot change your sex. There are two sexes that might be considered a form of hate speech in many university campuses, but it's scientifically true. There are two sexes. There are many different types of gender. I mean, you can you can claim whatever gender you want for yourself, right? But so, but sex is a scientific category, and um, it's it has to be understood that way. And we have to understand that there is that there are two sexes, because that's how gay people define themselves. I, I define myself as someone who's attracted to people of the same sex, not the same gender, right? Mm -hmm. So like, and you see now there are. Lots of trans activists or some trans people who are claiming that, um, you know, uh, gay people who refuse to date trans people are transphobic, right? Because I refuse to date, I mean, I'm married, so I'm not dating anyone, but, you know, a gay man or a gay woman who expresses that they're not interested in dating someone of the opposite sex, that used to be understood as homophobia, right? Mm -hmm. Like telling a, telling a, telling a, telling a lesbian, Oh, you know, just you just you just didn't find the right guy. That's homophobic. But there are trans activists now who say that, you know, there are trans women who say that, oh, like these women, these lesbians refuse to date me. They're transphobic. No, they just don't want to date someone who has a penis. Like, why is that such a problem? Mm -hmm. So all this stuff that's going on now, I don't consider it. Um, I, don't, I, just, I, I have a lot of issues with the transgender movement, mm -hmm. which I think in, well, I should say with transgender activists, because I don't think they speak for most transgender people. The transgender people whom I know want nothing more than equal rights. They want to be, you know, equal, equal employment rights. They don't want, they don't want to be discriminated against. You know, 
this this stuff about sports, mm-hmm. you know, like Le- like Le- Leah Thomas. Like, if I oppose that, am I transphobic? Because I don't think that someone who's a biological male should be competing against biological women. Because biological men have clear physical advantages. This just seems so simple to me, and I don't have, and it has nothing to do with gay rights. Well, there's so when there's you see the people- the issue that you're raising, and then there's also yeah. the statistical facts of like the whole nation is up in arms over what is it like, over, over 100 cases in the country of that of it's you know absurd. it's it's look but i but i fault both sides for this mm-hmm. right i think i think progressives once gay marriage was achieved and gays in the military and basically once gay rights were won progressives needed a new cause mm-hmm. um a, a new civil rights cause and so they seized upon this trans issue and it's like every day you know, you open up the newspaper, you'd think that there are, you know, tens of millions of trans people in this country because progressives have really em- embraced it and not just embraced it, they've they promoted it beyond all um, representation of the actual population, right? There's just, they, they've made a big issue out of it. And what do you expect is going to happen? Of course, there's going to be a response on the right. And again, because the gay issue- A, a has trigger, a very been, triggering response, by the way. Yeah, yeah. But the, because the gay issue has been settled, mm-hmm. right? The conservative move, the conservative movements also needs a social wedge issue. Mm-hmm. Okay. And they've and they've embraced the kind of anti-trans cause. So it's basically two extremes fighting over an issue that really does not affect many people in this country. But it it seems like we're talking I mean, look, we're talking about it now, right? I mean, this it seems that we 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 talk about this issue out of all proportion to the number of people whom it actually impacts. I'm a live and let live kind of person. Yeah. But I understand the arguments you're making, and I do understand the, the realities of certain things. As long as, it's not, as long as it's not impacting other people, right? And that's why the sports issue right. is, is something worth debating, because that's mm-hmm. impacting the young, the young women who have to compete against biological males, which is not fair. Yeah. It's also extremely, just as, speaking as a guy here, we can talk as men, it's also extremely like ungallant behavior. Like, what kind of man... <laughs> behaves that way. Like I'm going to come in here and dominate this activity where I have a clear physical advantage over all of you. Mm-hmm. It's just like really it's just like really crappy ungallant behavior. It's but. a place where we're at in 2024 <laughs> that may or may not make sense to a lot of people. Look, M- Martina Navratilova, one of the greatest tennis players ever. She's a great and a great lesbian hero. Yes. And, and she's been and by the way, she's been vilified. Yes. Okay, mm-hmm. as a, as a, as a transphobe mm-hmm. by these young by these young Gen Z know-nothings, okay, who know nothing about what she did and what she accomplished and the barriers that she broke through, lecturing her on what it means to be, you know, a human rights activist. It's it's absurd. Mm-hmm. Well, Sorry. it's the you. I my rant. No, <laughs> the rant. We're all about the ranting here. Um, in a little while, I want to I want to talk to you about Israel and anti-Semitism. And and I have I read something where you're talking about how. Gen Z's on the streets today, they don't even understand what the hell they're mm-hmm. saying when they say from the river to the sea, that kind of thing. So I, yeah. I totally agree with you. I want to ask you, growing up in a in a Jewish, liberal Massachusetts house, how did you start exploring conservatism and becoming uh, a neocon as a lot of people? Well, uh, I don't, I don't know, even know what that you. word, I don't even know, I don't even know what the word neocon means anymore mm-hmm. um well liz cheney's a neocon well, but she's also a rhino right so i think that's your, the, maybe the maybe rhino, the point you're making yeah, there are, yeah but there are other neocons who don't like liz cheney what she's doing mm-hmm. um i've always found the um again the kind of focus on uh neocons is sort of this 
strange. Um, like there aren't many people who identify as neocons. I went through a neoconservative phase, but I only say I don't, I don't think it means much anymore is because if you look at like, um, I mean, like the main neoconservative magazine was the Weekly Standard. It shut down a couple of years ago. Um, there's Commentary Magazine, which I occasionally write for. But, you know, the Commentary Magazine crowd is very different from the Bulwark. Mm -hmm. And people people call the Bulwark neocon, right? And like they're very different. So I don't know. Um, I, well, if you, if you listen to Tim Miller and, and Charlie Sykes yeah. and those guys, like you do can, they do they identify? They sound as like neocons? liberals. <laughs> these they days. sound like liberals now, right? Exactly. So these term, and, and I think that applies to a lot of labels. By the way, mm -hmm. I don't know if conserv. I don't think conservative means what it used to mean. Mm -hmm. um, the word progressive has made has has maintained its uh, consistency. I think we can we, we we can get into that in terms of my own look. In terms of my own political evolution, I was a I was definitely a neocon in the original sense of the word, and that I was a, a liberal mugged by reality. Mm -hmm. When I was growing up, I mean, my first my first political involvement was um, I supported uh, Bill Bradley for president when he was running in 2000 against Al Gore. He was the more liberal challenger to Al Gore. Um, and when he lost, I became a devoted supporter of Ralph Nader. Uh, who ran on the Green Party ticket. Um, so I was a very uh, left-wing, I, I wouldn't say I was like a, I was communist or anything like that, but I was definitely very left-wing in high school. I would say I began to shift more to the center and, and the center-right uh, on 9-11, mm. uh, which happened my senior year of high school. It actually began a little bit earlier. It began with the second intifada, which was in two, which which started in two thousand. So I was definitely, um, you know, pro Israel or, or whatever that means. I was definitely supportive of, of the state of Israel, sympathetic to Israel. And when the second intifada began, I began. Um, that's what really got me interested in the Middle East, mm -hmm. um, in the history of that region. Um, so I was already beginning to see, huh? You know, a lot of my friends here in the Ralph Nader campaign and the Green Party. They're really, really hostile to Israel. You know, they're they. I don't seem to agree with them on this. I I agree with them on most other things, but not this one issue. And then 9/11 happened, um, and that definitely, like a lot of Americans, by the way, I definitely shifted, at least on foreign policy issues. I definitely shifted to the right. Mm -hmm. um, the following year, I went to I uh, started um, freshman year at Yale University. And I found sort of the climate there. Um, it was not nearly, not nearly as bad as what you read about now on college campuses, but it was you could I could sort of see the 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 beginnings of of that, right? The sort of um, just in just just in general the kind of left wing intolerance for alternative opinions for debate. Um, the shutting down of contrary views, the shouting down of speakers, mm -hmm. all these things that you read about now is happening on a frequent basis. Um, I began, I, I started to get inklings of that. And I just found in general that the conservative students on campus seemed more open-minded in terms of debate and um, uh, sort of philosophically open-minded to hearing other points of view. Um, um, so that's kind of where that was sort of my early political, um, awakenings, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to ask you about a, a few things from your past, uh, which I find really interesting in terms of you and your character. The first 
is Jew in a Box. I love Jew in a Box. <laughs> Not to be confused with yeah. Dick in a Box, uh, <laughs> yeah, in this, <laughs> which in this case would, would be circumcised Dick in a Box. But yes, uh, <laughs> Jew in a Box in Germany, 2013 at the Jewish Museum in Berlin. You participated in an exhibit that did what? There was an art exhibit on contemporary Jewish life in Germany. I was living in Berlin at the time, and there was one part of the ex of the exhibit. It was just a um, a box, like a like a a glass. There was it were, there were glass walls on three sides, and for two hours every day, a real live Jew would sit in the box, and people visiting this exhibit could just come up and talk to you and ask you questions. And it was intended as sort of a meta commentary on what it feels like to be a Jew in contemporary Germany, where there are not many Jews. There's something like 125,000 Gee, I wonder Jews. why. Yeah, right. Um, and there was a, this was a very controversial exhibit. I think the, the leader of the, um, of the Jewish community in Germany criticized it and said it was like, um, you know, it was, it was like an animal exhibition at the zoo where I didn't agree with that at all. I thought it was actually a very clever um, perspective because I lived in Germany at the time and it definitely felt like that. Sometimes you mm -hmm. definitely felt like, like you were uh, like you were an animal on, you know, on, on an exhibit. And that's, that's what that um, exhibit, that's, that's what that piece of art was trying to say, what, what it was trying to show. Um, so I did that for, uh, for an, an afternoon and these Germans, came up to me and asked me all sorts of questions. And one of them asked me about circumcision, about why Jews circumcise their children. In fact, that was actually a big debate at the time in Germany. There was an attempt to ban circumcision, um, which, would have which would have impacted not only Jews, but Muslims as well. Um, and uh, fortunately, the, Ger the German Bundestag uh, voted that down. Um, but it was a real live debate. And I remember being on the subway uh, and there were ads on the subway for the campaign to ban circumcision, and it showed basically like the torso of a of a boy. He was he was wearing clothes, but he was covering his genitalia, and it said in big capital letters like you know don't touch me or something. So it was a very eerie. It was basically sort of likening circumcision mm. to maybe pedophilia. Mm. Um, so it was it was a very strange experience to have that sort of thing. A major subject of public debate, um, but yeah, I did. I, I participated, and I, I, th I thought it was fascinating. And actually, a couple of weeks later, I met with a, um, a, a Holocaust survivor, um, a German, a German Jewish Holocaust survivor who was who was visiting, and I and I brought her to the um, exhibit and watched. And it was, it was very moving to see to see people um, converse with her. Mm. Do you remember, like, aside from the circumcision question, was there a question that was just fucking cray-cray that somebody asked you? Um, I don't think, no. People were very serious. They were, they were very... Um, I mean, they, even a, they, even a they, serious they, question, but was just like, whoa, this person is... I mean, I think the most moving thing, there was, there was a woman who came up to me. She was probably in her 50s or 60s, and she just had kind of... It was a very emotionally fraught moment for her mm. i don't know if she had ever met a jew before which by the way is not uncommon i mean look if you live in berlin <laughs> her first one is in a box <laughs> yeah i think it was just very you know this is clearly a woman who was open-minded who was progressive right she was visiting the jewish museum in berlin 
she had, you know, grown up, you know, the Germans do quite a good job of, of, of Holocaust Memorial mm -hmm. uh, and, and, edu and edu education. So she had probably grown up with, um, you know, guilt, like a lot of Germans of her generation, mm -hmm. not her fault. She was, she, she didn't participate in the Holocaust. Right. right. But still a lot of Germans do are, are, are very conscientious about that subject in a way that I find actually extremely admirable. Um, and she was just, she was just very emotional. I think I think it was a very kind of difficult, mm. overwhelming um, experience for her to like actually, you know, meet a Jew in this in this way. Mm -hmm. Did anyone apologize, even though they weren't connected? No, for the well, Holocaust. I'm trying or... to remember. I mean, I I had to go back and mm -hmm. read the article I wrote. Um, I don't. It, the Holocaust did not come up per se. You know, mm -hmm. no one kind of brought that issue up. Mm -hmm. um, because that's kind of hovering over every conversation about Jews in Germany to right. this day. There is right. that, that 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 issue obviously looms large, um, and it's actually looming large now over kind of the debates regarding what's going on in the Middle East and Gaza and whatnot. Right. And right. there's there's a there's there's a very important, and I'm deciding whether or not to weigh in on it, debate going on in Germany right now about the kind of memory culture and you know have the Germans gone too far in combating anti-Semitism? Are they censoring or mm. stigmatizing um, speech that's, you know, just pro-Palestinian and they're interpreting it as being anti-Semitic? Have they sort of, you know, closed down avenues for debate and discussion because of this Holocaust guilt? History is a very fascinating subject in Germany. I mean, it's, there's, it, because it, it, it just, it weighs so much sure. on everything. Mm -hmm. um, but I would imagine it's a difficult choice for someone like you to make especially today because you talk about free speech and then you can talk about free Palestine and you can talk about what's happening in Gaza, but then it mm. almost always leads to that's why we must kill all Jews and take the country back. You know, so it's like, <laughs> it's hard to separate out any of that. You know, it's just all connected. But, but the other thing I want to ask you is it, also in 2013, I believe, you were invited to go on RT, Russian television, ostensibly to talk about uh, Bradley Manning, who was an army private who was accused of leaking classified information. And when the time came during the interview to talk about that, you refused and you just yeah. lambasted the country and Putin in, in terms of the anti-gay policies. Uh, and so that was a pretty ballsy move, I got to say. Um, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, this was in the summer of 2013 when the Russian government was passing a law that would have made it illegal to promote non-traditional sexual relationships to children, which they meant basically promoting homosexuality mm -hmm. to children. It was a very broadly worded measure that would have, it has since, since it was passed, it's basically made it illegal to really talk about homosexuality in, in any way that's not condemnatory, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, and it's very vaguely written. So yes, people have gone to jail for this. They've been penalized. Um, it's a real serious assault on freedom of expression. Mm -hmm. And yes, I was invited not to talk about that. I was invited mm -hmm. to talk about Bradley Manning, now Chelsea, but Bradley at the time, who was being sentenced to prison. Um, and they wanted me to come on because I had written an article advocating for a very harsh sentence. And so I came on and I um, I happened to be in in, in Stockholm, on vacation when the request came in. And I just said to myself, you know, I would never go on this network under any circumstances because I think it legitimizes um, 
the Putin regime. It's not a real news network. It's a propaganda outlet. But this seemed like a situation where I could make an exception, where if I hijacked the broadcast and sort of used it to, to humiliate and embarrass my hosts, that it would be worth it. And so I found, I spent the entire day trying to find some sort of rainbow uh, paraphernalia. And all I could find were a pair of rainbow suspenders at a um, vintage clothing store. Uh, and so, yeah, I, when, when the time came, I went into the studio in Stockholm and pulled on the suspenders and, uh, I didn't really, I didn't have a script or anything. I just started shouting at the hosts, calling them propagandists and they, they should be ashamed for themselves. And yeah, you can, you can watch it online. Mm. Um, they ended up canceling my taxi on the way to the airport. I had to catch a flight to Estonia immediately afterwards. Uh, and I got in the car and we sped off and then the driver literally got a phone call from his dispatcher about halfway to the airport on the highway, uh, which was RT had canceled my car. They had canceled my car to the airport. Uh, fortunately, the Swedish taxi company was very generous and they continued the ride for free. Um, but that was a, uh, the, the kind of last sort of spiteful, I mean, I can't blame them. I did, you know, cause an international embarrassment for, 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 for RT. So mm -hmm. I, I could understand that they were a little bitter and wanted to cancel my taxi ride. Mm -hmm. Definitely, well, ballsy move for sure. Um, the, you mentioned before the Ron Paul newsletters. Was that something that kind of launched you uh, career-wise? That was probably my first big real story. Yeah, I was at the New Republic magazine. It was the 2008 presidential campaign when he was running for president in the Republican primary. Uh, he was getting a lot of traction. Um, he was anti-war, so he was very much opposed to the Bush administration's foreign policy. And he was getting the attention of not just kind of you know, dissident Republicans and libertarians, but even some liberals mm -hmm. uh, were expressing um, interest in him because the, you know he was attacking the Bush administration and its and its foreign policy. Um, I always thought that there was something fishy about him, and um, I looked into it and I discovered that he had published these newsletters mm -hmm. for a long time, both in and out of Congress. You know, he had done them in the nineteen in the late starting in the late nineteen seventies when he was first elected to Congress, and then. There was a period when he was out of Congress, and, he's, and he and he also published him, and he published these newsletters well into the 1990s. And this was an era before the internet, before blogs, um, and there was this whole constellation of newsletters, newsletter publishers. You could get a newsletter on anything, financial newsletters, baseball newsletters. But there were all lots of political newsletters, and some of them were just very similar to what you might read now, you know, like a daily um, email newsletter, right? Like we've kind of returned to the newsletter era mm -hmm. on on in, in digital form and they're daily, sometimes multiple times a day. These were usually once a week or monthly and Ron Paul published these monthly newsletters and only one of them had ever been written about before. I think he was running for Congress in 1996 and there was, there was one issue of this newsletter that came up because he had he had used some very inflammatory language about black people. And so I figured, look, like if, if this, this isn't something you just do once, you know, if you're publishing a newsletter for decades and there's one issue that uh, has some racially inflammatory language, there's probably a lot of other stuff too. Mm -hmm. So I set about trying to find them. Um, and it actually wasn't that difficult. There's this great resource called WorldCat, which is, um, it's basically like Google mm -hmm. for um, libraries. Um, including university libraries, right? So they and and archives and research archives. And I just typed in the names of the newsletters, and there were two um, there were two archives that had them. One was uh, there's a special collection at the University of Kansas, 
Uh, it's the world's largest collect or the country's largest collection of American extremist political literature. So from like the Communist Party to the Nazi Party, excuse me, and everything in between. They had um, a run of, of issues. And then uh, the, there, there was another uh, library, the Wisconsin Historical Society, which for whatever reason also archived uh, these newsletters. And yeah, they were full of not just, you know, racist stuff, anti-Semitic material. Um, there was an implication that the Israelis were behind. The Mossad was responsible for the first World Trade Center bombing. Mm -hmm. To give you one example, lots of homophobic crap, um, particularly about AIDS. Um, and then just, and then just, uh, I, I think the most, like the largest bulk of 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 the, of the craziness was just like conspiracy theories. I mean, every every kind of right wing conspiracy theory in the book. Um, also support for militias in the early nineties. Remember when that was a thing, mm -hmm. um, Ron Paul was there, you know, he was expressing sympathy for David Koresh and the branch Davidians. Um, so yeah, it was, um, it was nuts. And he ended up denying that he had written them, which I think is technically true. I think he had a ghostwriter, mm -hmm. almost, cer almost certainly a man named Lou Rockwell, who runs a who runs a, a very far right think tank in Alabama, um, and was a and was a um, a longtime staffer of Ron Paul's, uh, but you know that doesn't absolve you if you have a newsletter called the Ron Paul Survival Report or the Ron Paul Freedom Report. They all went out under his name. They were all written in the first person. Okay, so it's your responsibility. And if you can't even manage or a newsletter, then how the hell can you run a country? Right. right. So. I like to think that that article I published, um, you know, really damaged his political his political reputation. He ran he ran for president again. You might recall in 2012, and those newsletters definitely came up then too. Mm -hmm. um, Let me ask you about your book, which came out just a little over a year ago, "Secret City: The Hidden History of Gay Washington." Curious to know what motivated you at that time to write about that subject. I know you've said, "quote The only enemy we have is the closet." What brought you to that subject at that? particular time? Uh, well, I've always been interested in Cold War history. Um, I really think that began probably when I when I read 1984 uh, in the sixth grade. Um, and at Yale, I studied uh, Cold War history. I studied under John Lewis Gaddis, who's probably the, the preeminent Cold War historian. Um, and then I moved to Washington, and I began to realize that Washington's a very gay city. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of gay people there, particularly gay men. Um, and that, it, and that it, it had always been that way, or it, it, it had been that way for a very long time. This was not a new development. Um, and then I, the more I was reading, the more, more it kind of came to gel in my mind that this, uh, this issue of homosexuality and the secret of homosexuality used to be, until fairly recently, really the most dangerous political liability in American politics, yeah. right? And that um, there was really nothing worse than being gay. You know, there's there's a quote that I quote in the book, you might have heard it from the corrupt governor of Louisiana many years ago, Edward Edwards, and he was joking once, he was extremely corrupt. And he joked that the only way I can lose this election is if they find me in bed with a dead girl or a live boy. Mm -hmm. 
Well, to, on that note, you, you are quoted uh, as saying, even at the height of the Cold War, it was safer to be a communist than a homosexual. Yes. Yes. I mean, but to go back to the other thing, you know, what, what he's saying in that is that the only thing as bad as murdering someone in American politics is being a homosexual. Right. He was joking, mm -hmm. but, that's, but that's the truth. And yes, it, it was worse than being a communist because a communist could come out as a communist and become an ex-communist. Mm -hmm. And in fact, some of the most important and influential leaders of the early American conservative movement in the early years of the Cold War, people like Whitaker Chambers, were former communists. Um, and you, you see that today too, right? Like you see people, even, even today, conservatives love the liberal or the leftist who renounces the left and comes over mm -hmm. to the right, right? And that's the same, it's the same, by the way, on the left too. Conversion therapy. You, 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 well, you mentioned, you mentioned Liz Cheney, mm -hmm. right? She's a political apostate. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's, nothing, there's nothing more that people love in American politics than a political apostate mm -hmm. because they can come over and tell you, yes, all those things that you hate about you know, the left or the right, they're all true. And I know because I used to be like them. Mm -hmm. So that existed with communists, right? So if you wanted to as a communist, or even if you didn't want to, you could you could denounce communism and you and you could you could maintain your political your political future. You could not do that if you were gay. Once you were denounced as a homosexual or exposed as a homosexual, it was the end of your career. Mm -hmm. um, and so that just seemed to me that a fascinating the fact that this was such a powerful secret that drove um, that drove people to such extremes. That seemed like a fascinating way or prism through which to investigate all of uh, American political history from, from World War II really until the end of the Cold War, because it, it's really the, that era, that era um, when secrecy was extremely important, right? The rise of the national security state, the CIA, um, the U.S. government went overnight with World War II. It went from being just a normal country to now it had to become a superpower overnight. It had to start collecting secrets and there's no more dangerous consequential secret than this secret of being gay because gay people it was feared that they could be blackmailed that they could become national security threats that they were traitors and so this it, it just it hovers over so much of american history and american politics mm -hmm. in the second half of the 20th century and the more research i did the more i found wow uh there's this amazing you know story about how the U.S. government thought the Nazis were gay. They thought, they thought that the Nazis were a kind of gay cabal. Or, you know, the Whitaker Chambers Alger Hiss case, the great, the first big spy drama of the American Cold War. It had this real homoerotic undertone. People, people were whispering that the two men had been lovers, right? Then you have McCarthyism. Uh, and the, there's the Red Scare that we all know about, but there was this other scare called the Lavender Scare, where gay men and women were purged from the federal government. Mm -hmm. And there were, you know, and you, who was working for Joe McCarthy? Roy Cohn. Mm -hmm. Well, you talk about that in the book. You clearly want to expose the hypocrisy and the contradiction of several presidents in modern history who had not only close aides, but even close friends who were gay, but... Mm -hmm were part of the movement to use their power to persecute and discriminate against Pretty, gays. Yeah, most of, the, most of the presidents, beginning with FDR all the way through Clinton, they all had people close to them who were gay. Some uh, were much more well-known than others. Um, and pretty much in nearly all cases, they ended up behaving poorly. Mm -hmm. um, you had these gay people who were gay men, usually, right? When there, there, there were very few women 
in positions of in, in influence or power in Washington in this period of time. Um, but they were expendable, right? They may have been very useful, very mm -hmm. helpful. Mm -hmm. In fact, you know, the main, I, I, the first story that opens the book is about a man named Sumner Wells, who was FDR's uh, top diplomat, all, basically performed the functions of Secretary of State. Um, but FDR had to let him go when, when, when it came out that he was involved in a, in a gay scandal. Likewise, Dwight Eisenhower, the man who basically helped him get elected, man ran his campaign. The Citizens for Eisenhower Committee was uh, Arthur Vandenberg Jr., the mm -hmm. son of the great Republican internationalist senator. Mm -hmm. And J. Edgar Hoover, who was a big character in the book, as you can imagine, when, when J. Edgar Hoover came to Ike with evidence indicating that uh, Art Jr. Was, was a homosexual, was a sexual deviant, uh, Eisenhower got rid of him immediately. And it was an Eisenhower who went on to sign an executive order that prohibited gay people from working anywhere in the federal government. Um, so it's a sad, it was, it was a very, you know, um, unfortunate pattern that we saw in presidential administrations that when push came to shove, uh, these gay people, once they were exposed, were uh, expendable. If they could keep it a secret, and there, were, there are a number of men I write about in the book who were able to keep this a secret, they could, they could get by. But the minute it became a political liability, um, they were essentially dropped. Mm. And even to a lesser degree, you talk about like Jackie O and Nancy Reagan, first wives, oh, who yeah. uh, they themselves had close relationships, but oh, yeah. kept a sort of safe distance. Yeah. Yeah. Jackie, um, she was definitely had a number of friends, Truman Capote, a uh, guy named Bill Walton, who was the arts advisor. Gore Vidal, whom she was related to mm -hmm. by, uh, I think he was a stepbrother. Um, Nancy, the story I think is more um, is more disappointing because um, you can look at because that's because that's when AIDS hit, yep. right? When the Reagans the Reagans were in office, and I mean, there's an entire page of photographs in the photo insert in my book. It's just Nancy with all of her gay male friends, her hairdresser, her astrologer, her designer Jimmy Galanos, her interior decorator, it's, it's entitled All the First Ladies Men. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, when, again, when push came to shove, you know, where where were the Reagans when, when AIDS struck? They were right. unfortunately uh, AWOL. Well, it took a while for President Reagan to yes. get on board. So let's switch and talk about the situation with anti-Semitism and Israel and the war and your recent op-ed in the New York Times titled Campus Speech Codes Should Be Abolished. This is such a topical subject because of what we saw last month with MIT, Harvard, and University of Pennsylvania presidents who went before Congress for a hearing and imploded, two of whom have already had to resign, although one was involved with plagiarism. Recently. Yeah. But explain why you feel that the rhetoric on campus is not something that should be looked at as a violation of the university's code of conduct? Well, look, universities, state universities are have to uphold the First Amendment. Mm -hmm. And private universities um, can do what they want, but most of them, and certainly the elite schools, um, like to think or proclaim that they are um, bastions of open debate and free free intellectual discourse. Mm -hmm. They essentially, They essentially claim to uphold First Amendment principles, if not the First Amendment technically itself. They're not legally obligated to. But there's no, you know, you, you would expect Harvard and Yale 
in such institutions to be no less um, havens of open discourse and free expression than a state school, right? So that's what the schools are supposed to do. Um, where the issue gets tricky is in speech that, you know, when does speech violate the First Amendment? And we have, you know, we, we, we know when it, when, when it does because there have been multiple Supreme Court cases that have determined when speech is illegal. And it's rare, by the way. Um, you cannot incite you know, imminent violence. Um, and how, that, how that's interpreted, there are, there's, there's case history, right? So when it came to these questions that the university presidents were being asked, um, you know, are calls for Jewish genocide, do they violate your, your policies? You know, to be fair to those university presidents, it is context dependent, because if I were if I were just standing on a quad in the middle of the quad, with a sign that said "Kill the Jews," mm-hmm. that would be that would be protected First Amendment speech. If I'm standing outside of the Hillel or the Jewish Center on campus mm-hmm. with a sign that says that, and I'm shouting it, that might very. I'm not a constitutional lawyer, but that could very possibly be considered. A violation of the First Amendment. It is it is harassment in that case, right? That is not acceptable. Um, it even even, be, even it if be... it's a private institution who says, okay, it may be okay in terms of free speech, well, again, but it's not okay here. Sure, and they can, and so that then the issue if if that's going to be the rule, by the way, that these schools are going to uphold. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the problem is 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 that. Their answer when they said context dependent is there's lots of other speech that they've been allowing on campus. Absolutely. That is far less against other groups. Mm-hmm. That is far less offensive or discriminatory or, you know, whatever. When it when it when it, when it came to other favored groups that they were perfectly um uh fine with punishing. But for some reason, when it came to Jews, they had a prop, they it, it's context dependent. Mm-hmm. Now, what I want, now what I want, as I said in that New York Times piece is I want more free speech. I don't want campus campus speech codes, okay? So that means if someone says, uh, you know, I don't want to use your pronouns or I think pronouns are ridiculous, that's not going to be considered a hate crime, okay? Mm-hmm. That's not that's not going to be punished by the university. Currently now, saying saying things at Harvard, for instance, there was a professor, Pauline Hooven, who was a biologist, who said that there are two sexes. Okay, she was driven out of the university. Mm-hmm. That's preposterous. That is preposterous, and that is why um, I think that was the real problem. That was my problem with the university presidents. It wasn't their answer to that particular question, because again, as I said, they're technically correct. It, it is context dependent. Mm-hmm. The problem was was their uh, was their sheer hypocrisy, was that they don't believe in free speech. None of those none of those university presidents believe in free speech. I could cite for you specific cases. I just said one for Harvard. There was a case at MIT where I think he was a um, some sort of scientist who was invited to speak about some science-related topic. Mm-hmm. He, had earlier, he had earlier expressed his opposition to racial preferences in university admissions policies. His speech was canceled, okay? That's a perfect example of a university doing what it should not be doing, right? Should not be penalizing people for their political speech. Um, well, in your Chilling piece, you 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 address this by saying two wrongs don't make a right, and you say, "quote right. yes. if quote if the problem with campus speech codes is the selectivity with which 
universities penalize various forms of bigotry, the solution is not to expand the university's power to punish expression. It's to abolish speech codes entirely. Yes, because I don't trust university administrators to be neutral arbiters. I don't trust anyone to be a neutral arbiter, which is why we have a First Amendment, right? Which is why we allow for very broad um, rights in terms of expressing yourself, because you know, one man's hate speech is another man's argument. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why there. That's why there is no legal concept of hate speech in American law. Mm-hmm. So we're three months out from the attack in Israel. Um, you took a pretty hardline stance in terms of pro-Israel and uh, very outspoken. By the way, almost everything you said, I personally agree with. But I, I'm also curious to know that if anything's transpired in those three months that have sort of moved you off of your earlier positions at all? No, no. I think Israel needs to... I think the goals of the war are just. Hamas needs to be um, eradicated, which doesn't mean that you're going to get... You're going to kill or arrest every member of Hamas. Mm-hmm. Um, but what what what... what what needs to be done to Hamas is what was done to the Nazis in World War II, right? So, you know, were there Nazis after World War II in Germany? Absolutely. M- many of them individually, okay? But the party was banned. Public expressions of support for Nazism was banned. And there's been no, you know, well, until now you could say that there's a far-right party in Germany 80 years later. But, you know, in the, in the immediate aftermath of World War II and for decades thereafter, Nazism was not a concern in West Germany. Right. So I think that the same uh, goals, the same objectives um, apply in this case. I think Hamas is a force that has to be defeated. And look, it's for the Palestinians' own benefit because there's never going to be a two state solution um, as long as Hamas is around. Mm-hmm. The Palestinians will never face, will, will, will never get justice. They'll, they'll never get the justice that they deserve as long as they have Hamas ruling over half of their territory. Um, and so what Israel's doing now is liberating Gaza from Hamas, just as the allies in World War II were liberating Germany from the Nazis. Um, the Palestinians are being, they are in the process of being liberated mm-hmm. from their oppressors. It was much clearer uh, during World War II. Why do you think there isn't that same embrace today of what well, Israel's look, doing it, to, to what you're saying? Perfect, it's, it's not a perfect analogy, obviously, okay? Mm-hmm. You know, it, this is a conflict. This is a conflict over territory that goes back eighty years. Mm-hmm. You know, Israel. Israel has militarily occupied. Um, it, well, it gave up its military occupation of the Gaza Strip in two thousand five, but it it occupied that territory for a long period before. It continues to occupy the West Bank militarily. So, the comparison. I'm not drawing a, a an exact analogy between. Um, the situation in in World War II, um, but there are there are similarities, right? So there are there are important similarities. Um, why don't people draw this comparison? I think you know there's how many Muslims in the world? Two billion Muslims versus 18 million Jews. So a lot of people are just frankly afraid. Uh, they're afraid of siding with the side that, um, while in this in this small corner of the world. The Israelis are more powerful than the Palestinians. Mm-hmm. If you if you widen the aperture, okay, there's a lot more Muslims than there are Jews. And so I think a lot of people just look at that. They look at the numbers. They look at the map. And they want to go with the side that they think is the strong horse. Um, 
in terms of the in in the West and in particularly in America, there's this poisonous woke ideology that many people have been indoctrinated in, uh, this oppressor oppressed dynamic um, that divides the world in half, that uh, is frankly anti-white, and that sees Jews as being white, and therefore being the bad guys. Um, and it doesn't matter, you know, the fact that you know half of Israeli Jews are actually not white by any kind of racial definition. That shouldn't even matter, by the way. Let's say all of Israeli Jews were Ashkenazi. Let's say they're all descended from Europeans. That should have no bearing on which side is just in this conflict. But because we see, we see at least the progressive left tries to frame everything through this racial um, lens, okay, which that might work in America, okay, because there's a huge racial history in America, um, dating back hundreds of years due to slavery, right? that lens does not translate to the Israel. It doesn't translate to almost any other conflicts, by the way. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, the, 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 the social cleavage in the United Kingdom is not a racial one. Okay. Like, like black people in the, in the United Kingdom don't have the history that black people in America do. But you still have attempts being made in Britain to kind of frame, you know, there's there's a BLM movement in Britain, even though there's nothing like the police brutality that there is in the United States. So there's just the, America is look, America is the most not only are, are we the most powerful country economically and militarily, we're also the most influential country culturally. Mm -hmm. And that our debates, our conversations, the way that we see things, the way that we see things, how we interpret things has enormous purchase all over the world, right? So, you know, a black man can die at the hands of a police officer in Minneapolis a couple of years ago. And there are protests all over the world. Mm -hmm. That doesn't happen anywhere. There's no other country where, a ra you know, a random police killing, which happens multiple times every day all over the world, there's no other country that can set off something like that. So when... You know, when when influential cultural figures and, and institutions powered by social media, when they decide to adopt a certain lens or prism through which to view a global conflict, it can be enormously influential. And I think that's what we've seen over the past couple of months is that there's this there's this progressive left wing interpretation of Israel Palestine, which views it as apartheid South Africa or as the Jim Crow South, right? That Gen that kind genocide. of genocide. Well, that's a different, yeah. Well, it's, all part, it's all part of it. Occupier, genocide, apartheid. Like it's all the, the buzzwords that are thrown out there. Yeah, I mean, the genocide, well, the genocide thing is even worse because what you're doing there is you are accusing the, basically the victims of the worst genocide in history, the Jews. You're accusing them of being the perpetrators of a new mm -hmm. Holocaust. And you'll see like, the Jews are now the new Nazis. After they the were the victims of a mini genocide on October 7th. I mean, you know, they, yes, right. people so losing that's, the- that, they were the victim a, in this whole thing to start. Yeah, um, that, that's a different. Yeah, yeah. But I just, I just think that the the American cultural conversation is extremely mm -hmm. powerful and extremely influ, influential, and um, unfortunately, it's it's tricked a lot of people into believing some very shallow and stupid things. Yeah. Well, I take a very simplistic view of it all. It's like I I liken Trumpism to racism. To me, it's just rooted almost entirely in racism. And I think what we're seeing in this country, at least, and certainly throughout the world in the last three months, 
is rooted in what I believe is the simple fact that the world hates Jews, always has, always will. And what crystallized that moment for me was the ripping down of the hostage posters, because here you have mm. a group of people who are like, we're so against what's happening in Gaza because these people are innocent. They're not part of the government. They didn't sign up for this shit. They're Houses are yep. being destroyed, their children are dying, all the things that we can all as humans have empathy for and compassion for. But then somehow all of that flew out the fucking window when there are Jews on posters in New York and elsewhere in this country. Because the people on those posters, also innocent, not part of the government, mm -hmm. not part of the military, didn't ask for war, just innocent people, but somehow no compassion, no empathy. It's just rip them down, hate them. And it's like, that to me is all this is. It's just, you know, you can call it Zionism, but it's still hate, which ties us back to our earlier conversation about LGBTQ. It's just, it's the same hatred. It's just under a different brand. And the brand is Zionism. Yeah, no, it's appalling. Um, I can't say that I was surprised. I was shocked, I think. Shocked, but not surprised. Only because I've been writing about this stuff for so long. Mm -hmm. um, I... I, I I was I was shocked at that people would kind of go out and express their um, their hatred so publicly. And yes, the tearing down of the posters has been, I think, the most repulsive aspect of it because it shows that there are people for whom Jews can't even be victims. Right. You know, we know that they we know that they Jews can be perpetrators. They can't even be victims, right? Even an infant, an infant, okay, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A totally blameless, blameless, okay. That even that is considered, and that's and that is what the Nazis believed, because the Nazis, what what distinguished the Holocaust from every other genocide was its attempt at exterminating every single member of a group, mm -hmm. including the in, including infants. Right, that had never happened before, and and, and it hasn't happened since. By the way, all these people talking about how you know Gaza is the Warsaw Ghetto or Israel's committing a genocide. It's you know. These people need to read some history books to realize how um, depraved and 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 d disgusting that 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 those sorts of comparisons are. Mm -mm. Uh, Jamie, this was great. A really uh, fascinating conversation on many levels. Appreciate you coming on, and hope you'll come back. Thanks for having me, Andy. Alrighty, take care. This episode of The Back Room was edited and produced by me, Andy Ostroy. It was co-edited and co-produced by Maddie Rosenberg, and co-produced by Jen Hamoud. Our theme song was composed by Andrew Hollander, and our logo was designed by Cricket Langell. And special thanks to Patricia Wind. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast, and also follow or subscribe. Until next time, keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards, and have a great week. Music